everyone, and welcome back to History Written by the Losers. I'm Annika. And I'm Sudha. And today, we're going to talk about something that we both are very passionate about. Food. Food. But specifically today, we're going to talk about the U.S. food industry and the history of it. Yeah, in many ways, food is still a mystery to all of us. It fuels us and it fuels our bodies. But today, we'd like to talk about how we have fueled food and the food industry. So let's start at the very beginning. Very um, good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> we don't pay a lot of attention to the food that we consume on a daily basis, but starting with early man, like Homo erectus, that was the first modern human species, the big change in the way we live came with learning to cook, and this contributed to doubling the brain size over the course of 600,000 years. So essentially, studies have found that being able to cook and being able to prepare food is what makes us humans. It's what separates us from gorillas, chimpanzees, and other apes. Right. So as we progressed, we began cultivating new foods, and we had a huge history there. We've got mayonnaise and bagels and sandwiches being made, not to mention cake, ice cream, pudding, pie, lollipops. As we mentioned, we kind of like food. <laughs> but... One of the most major events in history, period, occurred in the 1400s and 1500s, and that was the Columbian Exchange. The New World and the Old World traded all sorts of foods as well as diseases and people and ideas, but the foods that were introduced to new places made the world more interconnected. Many of the New World foods like potatoes, sweet potatoes, maize, and cassava, also known as manioc, resulted in caloric and nutritional improvement and therefore it fueled population growth. Other crops like tomatoes, cacao, and chili peppers were not by themselves especially rich in calories, but they complemented existing foods by increasing vitamin intake and improving taste. Aside from the Columbian Exchange, which was such a major event, especially in the food world, one of the most important periods of history is the age of industrialization. That's what made food an industry. Right. And we are skipping over all the part that the spices made, which led to so many wars and colonization. Yeah, spices and, you know, the chase for that is kind of what led to discovering the new world, which is what place. allowed the Columbian Exchange to happen. But... We are skipping over that section of history because food is just so important that it's in every, it's in every bit of Aspect history. Aspect of history. So moving into the age of industrialization. In the early 1900s, more than half of Americans were either farmers or lived in rural communities. Farmers were skilled in a wide range of trades and had autonomy over how to manage their crops and animals. Conditions like this might still exist, but the industrialization of agriculture has radically transformed how the majority of food is produced. It's really mind-boggling to think that over the brief span of the 20th century, how we create food via agriculture underwent greater change in that one century than it had in the past 13,000 years. So one of the key parts of industrialization that we saw was the specialization of production of food. So instead of diversified farms, we see fields being planted with just one crop species at a time, like corn, wheat, or soy. Specialization also applied to animal genetics. So we see selective breeding happening where animals were designed for a single outcome. This selective breeding allowed 
things like chickens to grow to almost twice their weight in less than half the time and using much less feed. However, it also increased risks for heart failure and other infections and dairy cows and all sorts of different problems among these animals. So with the good came the bad. Another aspect of this age was mechanization. Like work on an assembly line, specialized labor often involved repetitive tasks which could be performed by machines. So this meant that routine jobs were reduced and the need for human and animal labor on farms was also reduced. So the statistics that we have show us that between 1900 and 2000, the share of the U.S. workforce involved in agriculture declined from 41%, nearly half the people were involved in agriculture, to about 2% right now. Along with this, we have a lot of chemical and pharmaceutical inputs happening during the age of industrialization. So the early 1900s saw the introduction of synthetic fertilizers and chemical pesticides for crops. In addition, antibiotics were introduced to swine, poultry, and cattle. And by 2009, 80% of antibiotic drugs sold in the US were not used for human medicine, but rather livestock production. That's just amazing to think about. Another trend that has happened in agriculture is consolidation, which means that we now have fewer farms, but each farm is much larger than it used to be. So the average U.S. farm doubled in size between 1950 and 1997. And less than half of the farms from that time remain today. Largely as a result of consolidation, most of the food production in the U.S. now takes place in these massive scale operations. Half of all the U.S. cropland is on farms with at least 1,000 acres. That's over 1.5 square miles. So what happens with this kind of dependence on single facilities is what we saw during the pandemic when uh, facilities were shut down and immediately we lost a huge portion of our food supply. Yeah. So as a result of all of this consolidation and industrialization in general, markets for food and agricultural products have become increasingly concentrated. In the U.S. beef slaughtering and processing industry, for example, the four largest companies earn 82% of the sales. In the supermarket industry, four companies earn at least 42% of the sales. The food industry is now more about industry than it is about food. And so naturally, that leads to them having more power over policy and by lobbying government to make laws that are in their favor. And we'll touch on this a little bit later. But for now, we'd like to talk about what happens to the other percentage, the percentage that is just struggling to get by or the percentage that can't compete with these big industry farmers. That's right, the small farms or the minority farmers. So while many small farmers struggle today to compete with these big industries, from 2012 to 2014, white farmers still generated 98% of all farm-related income. Therefore, farmers of color comprised less than 4% of owner-operators on farms. They were also more likely to be tenants than owners, and they owned less land and smaller farms on average. So despite the greater diversity in the U.S. population overall, inequity is seemingly a fundamental part of the American farming history, unfortunately. A big part of it has also to do with slavery and 
how the slaves were not at all paid for the, their labor over centuries and those families had no chance of accumulating any wealth. Yeah. One incredible moment in history was right after the Civil War, when freed slaves and their descendants accumulated 19 million acres of land. In 1910, 14% of all farm owner operators were black or African American, which is much more representative of their population size and percentage than we see today. In 2012, they comprise only 1.5%. So how did that change happen? Well, there were many reasons for this to happen. On one hand, a series of federal homestead acts gave mainly white male settlers and corporations hugely subsidized lands. The Homestead Acts, which scholar Carrie Lee Merritt calls unquestionably the most extensive radical redistributive governmental policy in U.S. history, has had lasting benefits for white people. The National Park Service estimates that about 93 million people, or more than a quarter of the U.S. adult population, are descendants of people who received land through the Homestead Acts. Moreover, we see discriminatory laws being passed that prevent people of color from accumulating large portions of land. For example, the California Alien Land Law of 1913 prohibited various people of color from owning land. They were also denied reparations after the abolition of slavery. To add to that, they did not have labor protections like minimum wage or union rights or social security when they worked on farms. And one of the most important parts of this discrimination against farmers of color has unfortunately come from the government itself. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA, has discriminated against Black, Native American, Latinx, and women farmers in its lending and other forms of support for decades. For thousands of African-American farmers across the country, day-to-day -day discrimination by USDA has resulted in staggering loss of livelihood and economic stability over the last hundred years. In fact, the USDA practices which helped bring about a very steep decline in land ownership for farming by minorities was well documented. The government recorded widespread racial discrimination at the agency in lengthy reports from the mid-60s early 80s and late 1990s, especially in the provision of credit. A report from 1997 noted that a respondent in Belzoni, Mississippi, said the USDA treated small and minority farmers worse than I would treat a dog. A lot of these well-documented discriminations led to a class action discrimination suit between the USDA and black farmers. Pigford versus Glickman claimed that the agency had discriminated against these farmers on the basis of race and that they had failed to investigate or properly respond to complaints from 1983 to 1997. They eventually won, but discrimination claims and systemic racism in the USDA have continued through all presidential administrations, even up to today. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that small farms owned by white farmers have had it easy. No, certainly not. Many have been pushed out of farming in recent decades due to increasing industrialization and consolidation. Farmers comprise about 1.5% of the population. This is a percentage that is continuing to trend downward. And this decline in people choosing to become small farmers has only been worsened by big industry influences.
So let's talk about government and industry influences on our food production chain. So first, to state the obvious, many small farms are left out of the lobbying process, which allows a handful of the largest food companies in the world to dictate what is said to the government. So let's start with sugar. Now this is a landmark article that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, which actually opened my eyes when it was first published to how much everything that we uh, recommend to our patients as doctors is influenced by lobbyists from the food industry. In the 1960s, the sugar industry funded research which downplayed the risks of sugar and highlighted the hazards of fat. So this was a group, an industry group called the Sugar Research Foundation, and they set out to sort of look at what were all the determinants in our food that led to cardiac disease, and they came up with the answer through honest research that sugar was way more important. So of course, because they were an industry group, they wanted to prevent people from getting scared about sugar and from stopping to purchase sugar. And so they instead published claims and sponsored research by Harvard scientists that said that sugar did not play a major role in heart disease. If Americans could be persuaded to eat a lower fat diet for the sake of their health, they would need to replace that fat with something else. America's per capita sugar consumption could go up by a third. They pointed fingers at saturated fat and for decades after that, we were scared of having fat in our diet and we did not look at the risk of excessive carbohydrate or sugar intake. So there's no specific evidence that the SRF, Sugar Research Foundation, directly edited the manuscript published by the Harvard scientists in 1967, but there is, quote, circumstantial evidence that the interests of the sugar lobby shaped the conclusions of the review. Right, but as John Hickson, SRF vice president and director of research, put it in one document. After several scientific articles were published suggesting a link between sucrose and coronary heart disease, the SRF approved the literature review project. It wound up paying approximately $50,000 in today's dollars for this research, which refuted the findings of the other studies. So, while we may not think that food companies are deliberately setting out to manipulate research in their favor, it is fairly well documented in other places too. In 2015, the New York Times obtained emails revealing Coca-Cola's relationships with sponsored researchers who were conducting studies aimed at minimizing the effects of sugary drinks on obesity. Even more recently, the Associated Press obtained emails showing how a candy trade association funded and influenced studies to show that children who eat sweets have healthier body weights than those who don't. So this is still a problem that is quite alive today. Yes, and I must point out that the American Academy of Pediatrics, however, refutes all these claims and maintains the stand that uh, excessive consumption of sugary beverages leads to health problems in children. And this lobbying to help promote product sales is true in all industries of food. In general, processed food and beverage companies have an intense interest in the dietary guidelines for Americans. These are the nation's leading set of science-based nutrition recommendations. I'm sure you've all heard of them. They release this set of advice every five years. It informs healthy eating decisions for consumers and most significantly guides federal nutrition programs that serve millions of children, parents, seniors, and veterans every day. 
the red meat industry has consistently been able to stay on the guideline sheet despite clear benefits of replacing red meat with almost any other protein sources, according to Walter Willett, chair of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard University. The Dietary Guidelines Committee was also quite explicit in their recommendation to limit sugar-sweetened beverages, and that's not talked about in the guidelines at all. And while some may refute the idea that lobbying has played a role in these guidelines, quarterly disclosure forms filed by such groups during 2014 and 2015 show more than $77 million in lobbying activities directed at Congress on issues including the guidelines. So lobbying is playing a much larger role in what you're eating than you think, and what you're being told to eat than you think. So. As consumers, we have to be aware that while the advice we're getting is typically fair, there's always going to be some influence on it from those big industries. And sadly, there's also one more influence, which is big industry, which people have gotten more and more skeptical about. And there is a lot of uh, thought now being placed into how the industrialization of food has led to new technologies and new kinds of foods being introduced into our food chain. And we're of course talking about GMOs or genetically modified organisms being included in food. As you walk through the grocery store, you're sure to see many food labels saying non-GMO. And that is actually a result of organic industries lobbying to be able to say that on their products in order to help show Americans that they are not investing in this modified food. Right. The organic industry wants to portray itself as the more natural choice and that there is no corruption of any genetic material in the foods that are stamped as organic and they have set up GMO as the enemy. Yes. And while GMOs are said to be good by some people, said to be bad by others, and there's a lot of debate going on over it right now. Scientists across the world, including scientists from the WHO and most leading medical associations, say that GMOs are safe. They will not hurt you any more than any other food would. However, they have been facing a lot of pushback, especially as many companies are starting to ditch them in favor of non-GMO products because consumers are so wary of these GMO foods. But if you look back at the history of GMO, that is genetic engineering uh, based foods in this country, the first field experiments for food crops were started in 1987. And in addition to making food more aesthetically pleasing, they also developed crops that are easier to cultivate and are also disease resistant. In fact, GMO spearheaded the food revolution in the third world where countries like India, which were initially borrowing food from other countries and its population was starving around you know, 1940s and 50s, became completely self-reliant and in fact had food surplus after they adopted some of these technologies. However, they do have some downsides, including being invasive and having to release or use certain chemicals that are bad for the soil. And there is a lot of debate going on, and I'm sure that debate will continue for the years to come. But if one thing's clear, it's that lobbying has not helped soothe that debate. Spending by the organic lobbying groups in 2014 came to just over $1 million. What we're really trying to say is that we just need to be aware of the motivation behind certain 
recommendations and the motivation behind advertising. Yeah. They want you to be uninformed on what you're eating so that they can put something on a label and you'll think it's good or you'll think it's bad. But it's important that we actually look into what we're eating because otherwise these big industries will continue to have more power over us than we would ever want them to. That's right. Okay, so now let's pivot from eating to not eating and talk about the dieting fads. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Currently, Americans spend over $61 billion a year on diet products. What? Where did it all start? While diets were popular much before this, the first extremely popular diet was created by William Banting in 1860, and he had tried all sorts of different things to lose weight, but he eventually lost weight on a diet he invented himself, and he published what he did in a pamphlet called Letter on Corpulence. It sold thousands of copies all over the world, and so many people were on that diet that they started using the term I am Banting to mean that I am on a diet. <laughs> By the late 1880s, many, many more diet books were published, including On Corpulence by Dr. Watson Bradshaw, the first one to include a questionnaire for readers about their eating habits. People were also buying diet powders, often with useless ingredients in them or even dangerous ones. So it's safe to say the dieting had started to take hold across the world. One of the weirdest diet fads in the whole history of dieting was something called Fletcherism. It was a craze in the US and England around 1905 until the 1930s. Famous and intelligent people actually subscribed to this diet, including John D. Rockefeller, Franz Kafka, John Kellogg, and Henry James. So the story of Fletcherism is interesting. In 1903, big insurance companies began rating policyholders based on their weight. Horace Fletcher was an art dealer in San Francisco, and he was considered, quote-unquote, too fat to qualify for insurance. So he invented his own weight loss plan. He lost 40 pounds by chewing every mouthful 32 times or once for each tooth, and then spitting out the rest. Later, he refined the Fletcher method to chewing until the food is completely liquid or at least 100 times. Munching parties came into fashion while people just stood around and counted their jaw movements until they got to a hundred, which sometimes took as long as five minutes. Fad diets had really started to take over, and despite useless or sometimes dangerous parts uh, of them, people started getting really into dieting. One of the most dramatic changes in these attitudes towards diet and weight occurred right after World War I, which was a time of social revolution. Soldiers were returning from Europe with packaged cigarettes, and by the mid-1920s, cigarette companies were selling cigarettes as health aids that benefited digestion and, most importantly, helped you to stay slim. As you can see, a lot of the things being sold for diets then are clearly dangerous for us now. Yes. The biggest influence on the ideal of slimness, of course, was the Hollywood movie industry, which began making the first silent movies around 1895 and influenced decades of young people to look a certain way. Yeah. So fad diets went in and out throughout the 20th century. But in 1992, the U.S. government came up with a food pyramid, which was going to replace the old chart of essential food groups. 
So at the bottom, they had bread, grain, and cereal, with the advice to eat 8 to 11 servings per day. Next came fruit and vegetables, then dairy and meat, then fats and oils on top, which were supposed to be eaten sparingly. More and more research after 1992 began to show that the USDA food pyramid was grossly flawed. By promoting the consumption of all complex carbohydrates and recommending very sparing use of fats and oils, the pyramid provided misleading guidance. It led to a generation of people thinking that oil, fat, butter were really bad for you. In short, not all fats are bad for you and by no means are all complex carbohydrates good for you and balance is the key. Yes. So of course, nowadays a lot of people try to practice the Atkins diet, keto diet, intermittent fasting and while most of these diets when people read about them they seem to be based on scientific fact and research we don't know the effects of these kind of diets on the human body and i think that we need to take all of these uh, fads of dieting with maybe not a grain of salt but maybe a whole shaker of salt yes so diets continue today and there are certain ones that are safe, but what is important to keep in mind is that they are created first and foremost to earn money for their producers. So we just have to make sure that no matter what you're eating, you're eating safely and you're paying attention to the fact and the science rather than the big industry influences and what you're supposed to believe. It's important that you're keeping in mind that there is no perfect body type, there's no perfect way to eat, there's no perfect food or type of food that will, you know, keep you in whatever you believe is perfect because... Human bodies are not perfect. Yes. Human minds are not perfect. And we need to learn to embrace all kinds of variants. So now we'd like to rewind just a little bit and talk about those small farmers and those minority farmers who we mentioned have been uh, disproportionately affected by the industrialization of food. There is a glimmer of hope today. As I'm sure many of you know, a second COVID relief bill was recently passed. In it, there was a provision called the Emergency Relief for Farmers of Color Act. This includes $5 billion that will go to socially disadvantaged farmers of color, including Black, Hispanic, Native American, or Asian American farmers. So while the story of the past may be about how industry has seemed to outweigh food, we now can focus on making the future about the fair and equitable distribution of healthy food to everyone. We can start to focus on making sure that food fuels us and not the other way around. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Make sure that you follow us on Instagram at History Written by the Losers and on Twitter and TikTok at History Losers. If you ever want to look more into what we discuss on the podcast, feel free to check the description for links about where we got our research. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment if you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you next month for another episode of History Written by the, the Losers. losers.